Yeah. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. If you were not with us last week, I encourage you to listen to the introduction to this new series on the Beatitudes, since there's probably a lot of assumed knowledge at this point, assumed background information as we step into these statements themselves. Um, but this is uh, this this afternoon we're hoping to look at Matthew 5, 3, the first of the Beatitudes. Um, this past week, my family and I spent a good bit of time swimming. We were on a short vacation just in Indiana with family, and there was a pool, and so we had a good time. And a pool is a, a wonderful thing to have. It's a fun thing to have on a hot summer day, uh, but it's also unbelievably dangerous, <laughs> especially with small children who don't know how to swim. I think when I was a kid, I was completely oblivious to how dangerous uh, a pool was. And I was a lifeguard for a number of years. And even then, I don't think I, I really got it. But now as a parent, I am constantly aware of small children around a pool and the dangers that are there. Because a small child who is unable to swim, who falls into a pool, is completely helpless to do anything to save themselves. And in much the same way, Matthew 5.3 announces to us that we who are enslaved to and dead in our sins are spiritually helpless. And while no one wants to admit that they are completely helpless, Jesus announces to us that it's those who are spiritually poor who flourish in his kingdom. We don't want to admit that we're helpless. We won't, wouldn't want to identify with someone like as a, as a small child falling into a pool cannot save themselves. We don't want to think that we are that way. But Jesus actually is going to tell us this afternoon that that is where true blessing and flourishing and happiness is found. That the more we embrace our spiritual poverty and the more we allow it to, to shape who we are and how we live, the more we are going to flourish in God's kingdom. We began this new series, as I said last week, by introducing these nine statements found in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, as Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. These nine declarations that are called the Beatitudes and often translated with this word blessed at the beginning, and we acknowledge that that word may be a bit misleading, uh, the reason that's so is because these are not a list of things that we need to do to be blessed by God, but rather they are, are statements that are more at home in wisdom literature. They're, they're more like Psalm 2.12, blessed are those who take refuge in God. They are descriptions of what the blessed, the flourishing, and the happy person looks like. And so we said, in giving a definition of beatitude, a beatitude, we said, a beatitude is a surprising description of the flourishing life we are called to live as members of God's kingdom. A beatitude is a, a surprising description. These are not what we would expect. A surprising description of the flourishing life, this blessed, happy, joy-filled, flourishing, whole life that we're called to live as members of God's kingdom. I added that word called actually to our definition 
to try to convey this idea that there's an unstated invitation for us to take on these character traits. It is an implicit appeal for us to act in the way that's described while not placing the emphasis on doing things, but on rather being a certain kind of people in God's kingdom. So this is what we're called to do. And again, just to be clear, these are not a list of things to do to be blessed. We don't need to try to check them off, but we do need to ask how God wants to form them in us. We might say that these are our nine ingredients of a marinade. I don't know if any of you cook, but you got marinades that you put meat, if you want a steak or some chicken or some pork, and you put your ingredients together, and then you let that, that meat soak in this marinade until it takes on the flavor. And in the same way, these nine Beatitudes may function in some way like a, like a marinade that, that we need to sit in and soak in until we start to absorb the character of God's kingdom into our lives, and it actually changes us. And if you want to marinate or meditate on a text as this one is intended to be meditated on, then we said last week that one of the best ways to do that is to memorize it. Um, And so as we aim towards memorizing these verses together as a church, let's read them aloud together as we prepare to think specifically about how we can grow in poverty of spirit. Um, So Matthew 5, and let's read together aloud verses 1 through 12 up here. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can we read this one together once more? Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before we speak specifically on this idea, there's a couple more preliminary questions I just want to answer real quick that we didn't answer last week. The first is, as we're thinking about these Beatitudes, we want to ask, who's the audience? Who's who's Jesus speaking to in these Beatitudes? Who's being invited to act and live in these ways? Verse 1 seems pretty clear. Verse 1 of chapter 5 seems pretty clear. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the audience is his disciples, those who he called to himself and those who, by grace, had chosen to follow Jesus as their 
Lord and Master. However, at the end of the sermon, Matthew notes in, in, in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, Jordan read some of those verses. It says, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the crowd also heard these words. Jesus has separated himself from the crowd to speak to his disciples, and yet the crowd hears. And so it seems in one sense that this initial message of the kingdom is directed towards the disciples, but it's open for anyone to hear and anyone to listen to and to respond to and and to, to come with ears to hear and hearts that are ready to submit to the rule of King Jesus. It spells out who God's people are called to be while also speaking most clearly to Jesus' disciples. And it invites everyone who has ears to hear and to listen and to respond to these words of Jesus to do so. It creates a longing in all people for the, the kingdom of God. Anyone who reads these blessings sees and understands that there's something unique about what Christ is calling us into. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, that's the nature of the preaching of our church. It's directed towards those who are followers of Jesus through faith, but all are invited to, to hear what God's message to his disciples is about. Uh, my hope each Sunday is to proclaim the good news, to make it clear to people who have never repented from their sins and believed in Christ. Our hope is to paint a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is and who we are called to be as members of that kingdom that would be um, attractive to those that maybe are outside of that kingdom. And yet the majority of what we teach and preach from this pulpit is, uh, is focused on how the gospel is lived out every day by members of God's kingdom, by those who have been adopted as his children through faith in Jesus. And so the crowd listens, but it's clear that the Sermon on the Mount is, as a whole is about discipleship, and it's about the greater righteousness that the followers of Jesus are called to, a righteousness that leads to flourishing, a righteousness that leads to, to wholeness in life. The Beatitudes, though, are not entrance requirements for the kingdom. They are a full-orbed description of the character that the Spirit of Jesus is forming in those who are his children. You remember that idea that the it's a picture made up of nine different pictures that forms this one larger picture to, to tell us what we are to be like. And since it's a full picture made up of these nine descriptions, we need to be careful about how we look at each statement and how they relate to one another. So we're going to look at them individually, but also we need to think about this, this structure of the, the wider uh, nine statements. So that's my second question. I promise this is the last introductory question, which is what is the structure? What's the structure of these Beatitudes? There seems to be some kind of structure, uh, but in fact, there's a lot of debate over what that structure is. In fact, there's debate over whether or not there are eight or nine statements, in part because that ninth statement in verse 10 is different from the rest in how it's worded. It's not blessed are the, but it's blessed are you. And along with that, it seems like a restatement or an expansion of, of the one right before it. Um, blessed are those who are persecuted. Um, as you've heard, I've talked about nine statements, uh, if only because it seems to be structured like something we find in wisdom literature. If you've read through Proverbs, you'll hear the, the, the writer of the Proverbs say something like, there are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination. 
And then you have a, a list of seven different things with the emphasis being placed on this seventh one. And it seems maybe in some way that Jesus gives us this list of nine statements about how to flourish in God's kingdom, but he emphasizes that, that ninth statement. He emphasizes the place of persecution and the place of suffering in God's kingdom. There's other structural ideas. Maybe you notice that the, um, the second half of the first beatitude and the second half of the eighth beatitude are the same. They say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even the tense is a little bit different than the rest. We could say that uh, maybe what, the, uh, what Jesus is doing is he's showing us these eight beatitudes and then adding that ninth for emphasis. Maybe it's two sets of four. Maybe he's lumping them into three sets of three, and these are themes. I don't really know. But I think it's something to think about. It's something as we go through this. Do you see ways that these connect? Do you see how they might relate? This is how we think about the Ten Commandments. You look at the Ten Commandments, and the first four relate to how we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then those last, those last six teach us how we can love our neighbor as ourselves. And there may be some structure happening within this. So I invite you to um, think with this, with, with me about this together. And so there, enough of introductory questions and clarifications. Let's get into it. There's, there's more going on, but this is like playing a new game. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to teach you how to play a game. They give you all the instructions, and then finally you say, let's just play around, and we'll figure it out, you know. And so we're going to play with verse 3 and figure out how these things work together. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we try to understand what this means, I think one way to begin to understand what it means to be poor in spirit is to think about what it doesn't mean. What does poor in spirit not mean? To begin with, poor in spirit is not a personality characteristic. It doesn't have to do with, with your personality. You don't have to be quiet or soft-spoken to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit doesn't mean that you are melancholy. It doesn't mean that you're despairing all the time. That's not what poor in spirit means. It's not a personality characteristic. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, poor in spirit also doesn't mean that you have no inherent value as a person. To be in poor, poor in spirit doesn't mean that you are you have no worth as a person created in the image of God or even as a son or daughter of God through faith in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you are worthless or invaluable as a human being or that you should think of yourself as worthless or invaluable. To be poor in spirit is closely tied to humility. And simply put, though we misunderstand humility sometimes, humility is not found in thinking less of yourself, but in thinking of yourself less. We could also say that being poor in spirit is not only not, it's not a personality characteristic, it doesn't have anything to do with your inherent value as a person created in the image of God. And poor in spirit also doesn't mean to be poor financially. It doesn't mean that you have no money. Uh, even Luke's similar statement, Luke writes, blessed are the poor. And even in that, he probably is meaning blessed are the, those who have a poverty of spirit. And yet we could also say that it's often true that material poverty may be a, an advantage towards cultivating poverty of spirit, just as material wealth 
could be a detriment to our growth in spiritual poverty. We all know Jesus' words, Matthew 19, 23. He says, it's only with difficulty that a rich person will enter the kingdom of heaven. Same idea, the kingdom of heaven. And it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's difficult not because of their wealth, but because of their lack of spiritual poverty. And the link between those two things is found in the fact that material wealth often puffs us up. It makes us feel like we don't need God. And I'm not talking about massive wealth. I'm talking about some wealth, which is what most of us in this room have. Because when you're able to buy everything you need, and when you're able to get many things that you want, and when your paycheck provides for so many things in your life, then we begin to to think that we don't need God's help. That we don't need his help for our daily bread, and we don't need his help then by extension for our for the bread of eternal life. And so poverty of spirit may not mean poverty of wealth, but it's often the case that the materially poor are the ones who are poor in spirit. It's often those who may be lacking in wealth and in power and in status who make up God's kingdom. Paul tells us in Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 29 he essentially says, "Hey, look around and see who's there." He writes, "Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth." But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. Not many of us want to be a part of that group. But Those who are poor in spirit are the ones who enter the kingdom of God. And often it's those who are poor in other things that are in God's kingdom. Poverty of spirit, we find there at the end, it produces praise to God, not pride and boasting in ourselves. And it was that kind of boasting that the Pharisees struggled with. The Pharisees often were identified as materially wealthy, but it was in part their, their lack of poverty in spirit that made them the subject of Jesus' woes. You remember in that parallel passage at the end of Matthew, Matthew 23, parallel to the, the blessings of, of Matthew 5 are these woes in Matthew 23. He speaks of their pride in Matthew 23, 5 and 7, 5 through 7. He says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. Then hear these woes of Matthew 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. James Montgomery Boyce wrote that 
being poor in spirit is the opposite of being rich in pride. And the Pharisees so often were rich in pride. And so Jesus, in contrast to their way of thinking, he says in Matthew 23, 11 and 12, the greatest among you will be what? Your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted, will be a member of God's kingdom. Jesus had strong words for the Pharisees. He has strong words for the church in Laodicea. He said in Revelation 3.17, in some of his words, he says, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The man or woman who is not poor in spirit doesn't recognize that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And they announce to the God of the universe, I need nothing. Not realizing that they have nothing apart from God's grace. Do you see the irony of this beatitude? Do you see the upside downness of God's kingdom? and the people who make it up. Jesus is, is describing, we said, this flourishing life, uh, a life um, that, that is filled with happiness and wealth, material or other kind of wealth, that's often at the core of our natural sin-skewed understanding of, understand, of, of thinking about what flourishing is, of what the good life is. And Jesus says, that wealth isn't a part of those who flourish in God's kingdom. In fact, poverty is. When you think about flourishing and blessing and happiness, the word poverty doesn't usually come to your mind as being associated with it. It's not a concept that, that we think about. And yet, this, this was, and this was probably also the case for, for, Je- for the people who heard Jesus that day. They're thinking about the kingdom of God. And surely they saw it as a place of abundance, a place of of wealth filled with people who were rich and, and well-off, or at least wise, people who had it all together, at least on the outside like the Pharisees did. And yet, Jesus here in this first great address on the kingdom of God, and in the first statement, he tells, that, he tells us that the people who comprise God's kingdom, the people who make it up, are those that are poor. Those who are filled with a poverty of spirit. That's good news for us that don't have it all together. (laughs) Those that slowly are realizing our lack of wealth in in many places, not just financially. So who are the poor in spirit who flourish in God's kingdom? We've kind of said what they're not and been swimming around in this idea a little bit. I want to give you my best one-sentence answer to who the poor in spirit are, but first... I want to read five translations of Matthew 5.3. These are more thought-for-thought translations, so ways that people are trying to get at understanding what poor in spirit means. God's Word translation says, Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The International Standard Version, How blessed are those who are destitute in spirit, because the kingdom from heaven belongs to them. The contemporary English version, God blesses those people who depend only on him. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. 
The New Living Translation says, God, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And Eugene Peterson in the message says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. And so taking all those ideas about poverty of spirit and some commentators and other thoughts, here's my statement. The poor in spirit are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God and therefore trust and depend on him alone. The poor in spirit are those who acknowledge, who see, who understand, who embrace their spiritual bankruptcy before God and therefore trust and depend on him alone. The women and the men who are streaming into God's kingdom are those who are alive to how spiritually dead they are. The kingdom of heaven is made up of people who see that they could never make themselves acceptable to God. And it's these, these poor ones that Jesus has come for. This is what was prophesied, that key passage, Isaiah 61 Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. To who? To the poor. That's who Jesus came for. Jesus often says that the kingdom is filled with people who are little children. And one of the many things that little children don't have to worry about is money. Uh, that's why no matter where you are a waiter, you can always use the joke of giving the bill to one of the kids at the table. That's always funny because the kid's never going to pay because the kid doesn't have any money. If we were to go out to eat and the waiter or the waitress gave the bill to Ann, that's funny because Ann doesn't have a wallet. She doesn't even own a wallet. She has no money. She is bankrupt. Just as you and I are spiritually bankrupt, we are spiritually impoverished. We have nothing to give to God. Those who are a part of God's kingdom sing songs like this one. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. People who are poor in spirit sing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And while the Beatitudes, as we said, are not the entrance requirements for the kingdom, this is the kind of character that begins to form the, the moment that we first see our sin for what it is and the moment we first look to Jesus alone for salvation. There's a poverty of spirit that comes with repentance. The good news of the gospel calls us to repent, to repent of our sin, yes, but also to repent of our striving to offer something of spiritual value to God for our salvation. Rather, when we see and understand the gospel, we come to Jesus and we admit that we are lost and dead, that we are unable to keep his law and we deserve eternal punishment. And from that place of spiritual brokenness and poverty and bankruptcy, we look to Christ, who is rich in righteousness and mercy, who has lived the life that we could not and died the death that we deserved so that all who trust in him alone could be saved. 
if that's how we come into the kingdom, then poverty of spirit also marks the way that we live within the kingdom. It marks how we live as members of God's kingdom. Poverty of spirit is is the, the character trait that marks our entire life of discipleship. When we're when we're poor in spirit, we live out of a, a continual and ever-deepening realization of how little we truly have. We think we have nothing. And then more and more, we realize that we really, really don't have anything to offer in and of ourselves. It gets deeper and deeper that we could, we, our realization that we could never give Jesus anything that would make us worthy of his grace and his mercy and his love. To be members of, of God's kingdom in this sense is to see that, that weakness, to see our weakness and then depend on Christ alone. We see more and more what Jesus meant when he says, I'm the vine and, and you are the branches. You have to abide in me because if you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. You can do nothing. If you're anything like me, you say, well, I can do something. I can do something of spiritual value, right, Jesus? And the longer we live, we realize, no, apart from God and apart from his spirit working in us, we can do nothing. That doesn't mean we do nothing, but that we do nothing in our own strength. It means that those who do the most in God's kingdom are those who realize that they can do nothing apart from God's grace working in them. As I thought about poverty of spirit, I thought about people from, from the Old Testament. It's, it's the spirit that's in David in, in 2 Samuel 7. You remember 2 Samuel 7 is the, the Davidic covenant. And David is told by God that his line will endure, that, that, that from him, Kings will continue to go for all eternity. And it's from David that the, the line of Christ comes. And in response to this, David says, in response to this, this announcement, David says in 2 Samuel seven eighteen, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And then he goes on. That exemplifies a, a poverty of spirit. Then David, a couple chapter later, chapters later in, in chapter 9, in some sense does what God has just done to him, and he extends grace. We know that for the most part, when kings would take over, they would kill all the, all the descendants of the other line so that there were no people that could come and, and lay claim to that, that throne. And so David took over as king of Israel, and people would have expected him to kill anyone related to Saul, the previous king. Kill all the descendants of Saul so that no one could come and take that throne. But what does David do? In 2 Samuel 9, he shows kindness to a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth who was lame in both of his legs. And David brought him in. And Mephibosheth stayed in David's palace for the rest of his days. And David fed him and, and gave him land and restored the land of his, of his father Saul. And what's Mephibosheth's response? Similar to David's. It says in 2 Samuel 9, 8, And he, Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Mephibosheth saw how 
weak he was, how broken he was, how he had nothing to offer to David, and yet David extended him kindness and grace. And so his response was, I don't understand the grace. I, I, am, I am not thinking that this is something I deserve. We could talk about Paul who saw himself as the chief of sinners. We could move away from Scripture and think about a guy like William Carey, the father of modern missions who awakened a whole generation for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet William Carey, on his gravestone in India, where he died trying to take the gospel to India, it reads under his name, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. That's what's on William Carey's gravestone. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. We said, As we said earlier, Carey is not saying that he has no value as a man created in God's image or as a, as a son of God purchased by the blood of Jesus. He knows that. But rather he is announcing through his death and on his gravestone, he's announcing to anyone who would read it all these generations later that nothing that he did in his life earned him status as a member of God's kingdom. That it wasn't William Carey, the father of modern missions, that because he was the father of modern missions, that's why he was a child of God. No. Rather, he understood and showed forth his poverty of spirit. And that poverty of spirit marked him as a true member of God's kingdom. In the same way, John Newton, the former captain of a slave ship, knew that he had been spiritually blind and dead. And so he wrote what we sang earlier. He wrote Amazing Grace to testify to the miracle that God had saved a wretch like him. That's poverty of spirit, to know how lost we are and to know the miracle of God's grace. And you don't have to be the former captain of a slave ship to have it. It's true of all of us. If we understand our brokenness, if we understand our inability to do anything to save ourselves, and as we grow in that, we grow in poverty of spirit. And we begin to look more like members of God's kingdom. And the irony is that we become happy. Jesus says this is the way to flourish. This is the way to be joyful. This is the way to have wholeness in your life. Not to pretend like the Pharisees did that they had it all together. Not to be whitewashed tombs. But rather to admit inside I'm broken and dead. Not to, to say that we in and of ourselves can make it back to God, but rather to admit that we can't. And that's where true joy comes. What might poverty of spirit look like in us? I invite you to think about that. What does it look like every day to walk in a poverty of spirit, to walk in this continual brokenness to walk in an understanding of your spiritual bankruptcy before God to continue to depend on on him day in and day out I think it looks here's a, a few thoughts to maybe spark your own thoughts I think it looks like continual dependence upon God we said the the poor in spirit are those who not only acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God but they therefore trust and depend on him alone so we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, but we don't wallow in that. We then, as Carrie said, fall on God's kind arms and let him strengthen us and help us. So poverty of spirit means we are continually dependent upon God. It's going to lead to, to greater faith and greater, 
greater trust. It leads to waking up in the morning and saying, I, I can't do this on my own. It leads to continual prayer, to continually recognizing that apart from God's grace, I'm not going to be able to do anything that would please him today, but because of his grace, I can. And so I need to trust and depend on him and allow his spirit to work in me. I need to abide and accomplish much through him. So poverty of spirit would look like a continual dependence upon God, a constant acknowledging of our need of Christ to do anything of everlasting and eternal value. I think it looks like love and empathy for others. I think that if we are, another way that we might see poverty of spirit worked out in our lives is love and empathy for others. that we would recognize that people are struggling and people are striving to do things in their own strength. And, and we want to help them realize you, you can't do this on your own. But we also recognize that that's our natural bent is that we want to strive and, and do things on our own, but rather that we would help people to see that they can't. Love and empathy for people that we might be sharing the gospel with. That we recognize that their natural inclination is to want to do something to earn favor with God. And that our goal in sharing the gospel from the beginning is in love and in grace to say, you know what, you can't. You can't do anything. Do you, do you see your brokenness? Do you see how bankrupt you are? Do you see how lost you are? Do you see how dead you are apart from Christ? You cannot do anything. But do it with a sense of love and empathy. Because that's who we are. And then doesn't it result in gratitude and thanksgiving? Gratitude and thanksgiving in our lives? If we, if we realize how broken and bankrupt we are, isn't that going to make the cross more beautiful? Isn't that going to make what Christ has done for us more attractive? And that we would live our lives in this gratitude? There's so much more for what poverty of spirit is going to look like. I invite you to continue to process that and Please let me know if you got any thoughts. But what we said is that the, the poor in spirit are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy before God and therefore trust and depend on him alone. And so I invite you to, to consider yourself as a, as a child of the Father that's got no money. <laughs> You're like a kid at a restaurant where they bring the bill and you can't do anything. You just... You are a child of, of God, and, and he's the one that has taken care of anything, everything. You might even just think about poverty of spirit as, as you, whatever, if you, had, if you had, this illustration is, I'm working it out right now, so it's going to be weird. If you had like spiritual pants, and you could turn your, your pockets out and say, I've got nothing. I don't have anything to offer. My, my, my pockets are, are empty. If we could just realize, I invite you to, to realize that you have nothing that you could ever pay to God to earn your status or to earn your salvation. I invite you to, to just, even afresh, to graciously accept this gift of salvation. To graciously accept that it's God's daily sustaining grace and strength that's going to allow you to walk in the flourishing way of the kingdom. And that apart from that, you will not, but that he invites you to abide in him. And the more we do that, the more we realize our brokenness, 
the more our lives will flourish in God's kingdom. The more we will look like those who truly are the people who make up the kingdom of heaven.